really, really good. Um, but this morning I walked in and I heard the worship team practicing and I, it was such a joy to be back. And even more so as we began to worship together as a church. So thank you. Thank you, worship team. Yeah. But thank you too. It's really a privilege and a pleasure. As was already mentioned, today is Palm Sunday, and so we are in the traditional text for Palm Sunday. We're going to read the triumphal entry. We're reading, this is a story that's in all four Gospels, and in each Gospel, different aspects of it receive a different level of emphasis. And so we're going to be in John chapter 12 today. So if you have your Bibles, if you've got a phone you like to turn on to, or if you just want to follow us on the screen, that's fine. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to read verses 12 to 19 of John 12. And we stand together to honor the word of the Lord, um, to participate in this together, and to remind you this is the best thing you're going to hear from me this morning. So starting in verse 12. Do we have it on the screen? There we go. All right. The next day... The great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. (laughs) Next, yeah. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day thousands of years ago, Lord, as you entered Jerusalem, as truth was revealed about who you are and about who we are. And I ask this morning you would continue to reveal those truths about who you are and about who we are, Lord. We come to hear your word. We come to meet you. So be present, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So what's going on here as we read this passage? I, I want to invite you to imagine it again. How many of you, I'm, I'm expecting most, if not every hand to go up, how many of you have been to a parade? Yeah, most of us, I think, have been to If you haven't been to a parade, um, go look it up on YouTube. <laughs> it's, uh, they're fun. Um, you know, you see these, all these different displays and floats coming down the street. And if you're in a big parade, you know, the crowds are all around. Christina and I, when we lived in South Korea, got to go to a parade um, for one of the like, light festival type things. I'm going to forget. Was it New Year's? Was it Chinese New Year's? Anyway, we went and we joined these huge crowds on the side of the streets in Seoul. And these you know, dancers and different instruments and floats and fireworks. It went on for a long time. And we were getting tired. And we were like, you know what? I think we're probably, we don't need to see the whole thing. And so we started to leave and someone was like, where are you going? We had only seen the (laughs) pre-parade. We'd probably been there for like an hour and a half. 
and the real thing hadn't even started yet. We still left. <laughs> we're introverts. We were done. Um, <clears throat> so you've got this image of a parade in your head, and, and you're starting to, to see what this would be like here in John chapter 12, except this is just one guy coming into town, and it's unplanned. It's not like the city set this up and gave up permits, and, and there's a whole bunch of different, you know, clubs and associations, and there's the Greco-Roman wrestling club, and there's this temple, and there's, it's not that. It's just one guy, and it's spontaneous that the crowds have heard that Jesus is in town. And this is a lot of people. Like, this is the Passover feast in Jerusalem. It's the biggest feast of the Jewish calendar. If you don't live in Jerusalem and you're going to go there once a year, this is when you go. So the population of Jerusalem would would increase by four or five times. Imagine that here in Prince George. We're normally around 80,000 people. For one week, there's 400,000 people here. It'd be crazy. So these are no small crowds, and they come out to meet Jesus. And, um, and it, there's, some, there's some understandable reaction going on here, because what are the people gathered for? They're gathered for Passover, which is when you remember the exodus of, of Israel from Egypt. You remember the big moment when God rescued his people from slavery and took them on this long journey across the Red Sea, through the desert, into the promised land, where he made them into a great nation. And they come together, and when you come together for this Passover feast and this festival and this week-long event, you remember a lot of the high points of that story. And you couldn't help remembering, I don't think, the high points of the nation of Israel, especially now, in Jesus' day, when Israel is far from one of its high points. They aren't even really a nation anymore. They're under Roman control. Yes, they have a king, but he's a puppet king. He only exists and has his position because of Roman, uh, the way that Rome ruled other countries was to put somebody from that country in charge because they figured it would make it easier for them to govern those people, make them less rebellious. But they're still under Roman taxation and they're under Roman law and they're not Roman citizens. They're second class at best. And so you come together for Passover and you think this is when we celebrate the making of our nation and you think about King David. Right? You think about the king, the king after God's own heart, who shepherded them with integrity of heart and led them with skillful hands. A war master, right? who begins his career by defeating Goliath, a giant. And that's just the beginning. Right? And he's surrounded by mighty men who do amazing deeds. You can read about them in the books of First and Second Samuel. Um, just the awesome things that God did through David and his people. And then they think about Solomon, the next king, the wisest man who ever lived, who made silver so common in Jerusalem that they couldn't make anything in the temple or anything in the, in the palace out of silver because it wasn't valuable enough, right? They had to use gold. They had to eat with gold forks in gold bowls on gold plates because if it was silver, it would be an insult, right? So they're thinking about these times of power, and these times of wealth. And here comes Jesus, who has done amazing things. And they've heard the stories. Just before this, Jesus raised someone from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And we heard about that last week. Don preached on that for us. And this, this crowd, they're still excited about what Jesus has done. They're still talking about this. And they're thinking, maybe, maybe this is the king who's supposed to come 
and put everything back the way it's supposed to be. Not just maybe, though, because as the crowd gathers to greet him as he enters Jerusalem, that maybe becomes a yes. And they take palm branches, and they wave them, and they shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And they declare Jesus' kingship as he enters Jerusalem. Now, they've tried to do this before. Two weeks ago, I think, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. And after he feeds the 5,000, they try to make him king, and Jesus disappears into the wilderness. He's not going to let that happen. This time, he rides in on a donkey. So what's going on here? Why the change? Well, it's less of a change than you think. So there's a few things you got to do to understand what's going on here. One of the things you may have noticed as I preach is that whenever we hit something that refers to the Old Testament, I try to walk through what's going on there. And this is just a good biblical reading principle. So you're reading the Bible on your own, and you come to somebody quoting the Old Testament, you should go read that passage. You should have it in your mind, right? Because they're, they're doing that for a reason. They're quoting the Old Testament passage, they're quoting for a reason, and they never quote everything they want to, um, because unlike today, in the day that the Bible was written, writing was expensive. Paper and ink were expensive. And so the tradition was to quote a small portion of something to refer to the whole. Because if you wanted to, they're quoting Psalm 118 here, you want to write out all of Psalm 118, that's an extra page. And paper, papyri, this is not something that you can afford unless you have quite a bit of money. Um, So you just put one line. So they're quoting Psalm 118, and they're shouting Hosanna. Well, what's going on here? Psalm 118, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you were to turn back and read Psalm 118, Psalm 118 is a psalm of national victory. It's a, it's a, it's a celebration of the victory of Israel over its enemies and its oppressors. It's a nationalistic psalm. It's a psalm that says, rah, rah, go Israel. Why are they shouting Hosanna? You can find this in the Old Testament as well. It's in 2 Samuel and in 2 Kings. It is a traditional greeting of a king of Israel. Again, very nationalistic. Why are they reading, raving palm branches in the air? Now, this you can't necessarily find if you turn to the Old Testament. You need a good study Bible for this, or you need to look it up in some, some of the good places you can in the internet, um, or I can lend you books too. But uh, the palm branch is also a symbol of the national pride of Israel. And to understand this, you've got to go back about 160 years before Jesus. 160 years before Jesus, Roman Empire isn't a thing yet. The nation of Israel is under the rule of the Seleucid Empire. It's a Persian Empire. And um, the king at this time, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He ruled Palestine from 175 to 164 BC. And, uh, and he treated Israel with such violence and such contempt that they rebelled against him. One of the things he did as they started to rebel, to suppress the rebellion, was that he rode into the temple in Jerusalem and he offered a sacrifice of pigs to Zeus on the Jewish altar in Jerusalem. Now think about that. Pigs, okay? Unclean animal, like the worst thing. Blood, right? That you're pouring like unsanctified and, and, and you're worshiping Zeus, right? Because... And so, like, so they called this the abomination of desolation. That may be a familiar phrase to some of you. It's prophesied in Daniel before it happens, and it's referred to in Matthew after the fact. The abomination of desolation. And this just 
I mean, this just stokes the fires of rebellion. Antiochus Epiphanes thinks he's going to show how powerful he is, and this is going to make them all shut up and get back in line. And he doesn't understand the Jewish people because this leads to one of the only successful rebellions between the initial time of rebellion or of exile and actually the only, the only successful rebellion between exile and the Old Testament, like 500 years before Jesus, and ever. <laughs> um, and this is known as the Maccabean Rebellion. And if you get a Bible that has the books that come in between the Old and New Testament, which are not scripture, but there's some interesting history there, there's three books called the Maccabees that record this rebellion. Now, why am I telling you this long story? Because when they had successfully rebelled, and they go back into the temple to purify and cleanse it again, they do so carrying palm branches. And palm branches become the symbol of the Maccabean Empire. So much are they the symbol of Jewish nationalism that after Jesus has died in the year AD 66, when the Jews attempt to rebel against Rome, they start printing Jewish coins, and on one side is the image of the temple, and on the other side is the image of the palm. Now, that is one of the last attempted rebellions, and this is prophesied by Jesus in the triumphal entry, not in John, but in Luke. In Luke, right after the triumphal entry, Jesus stands on a hill overlooking Jerusalem, and he, he mourns. He says, if you only knew the day that your God was present and the way of life, but you don't, and the day is coming when your enemies will set up ramparts around your walls, and they will attack you, and they will destroy you, and they will not leave one stone of this temple standing on another. And this is what the Romans do in AD 70, because that's how the Romans handle rebellion. They tear apart the whole city, and they salt the ground, so nothing will grow there again. Okay, getting ahead of the story. Back to the triumphal entry. Everything the crowd is doing the psalm they're quoting, the word they're saying, the branches they're waving, everything they are doing is pointing to the fact that they want Jesus to be the next David. They want him to be the next king of Israel who's going to throw off the yoke of Rome, who's going to restore them to glory, restore them to independence, restore them to wealth and power so that they can be back on top because this is what they expect. <coughs> They think they need another king like that. But they haven't understood the real problem. And Jesus responds to them with a prophetic enactment. What do I mean by that? They tried to make him king after he fed the 5,000, he disappeared. Now he has to go into Jerusalem. But he's not heading for the throne, he's heading for the cross. He can't duck out into the wilderness and disappear again. He has to enter the city. His time has come. So instead, he gets on a donkey. Now, there's a lot going on here when he gets on a donkey because a king doesn't ride into town on a colt, right? If you ride into town, if we're talking today, on a tank or in a limousine. You're talking back then, you ride in on a war chariot or some kind of exotic animal, Right? You're, you're Aladdin, it's an elephant. Um, maybe a camel with really fine uh, saddle and all this kind of stuff over it. And he rides in on a young donkey, but it gets worse or better. They quote the prophet Zechariah. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Same thing, you've got to go back and read Zechariah. 
They're not just saying, yes, he's the king, and here he comes on a donkey. Zechariah is a book of prophecy about the day of the Lord, when this king will come, and one of the main points of the prophet Zechariah is that that day will be a day for all nations, and it will not come through the power and might and wealth of Israel. It will come through the hand of God. So Jesus is enacting a prophetic rebuke. Yes, I'm the king, but I'm not the king you want me to be. And this is the heart of the triumphal entry as John presents it. The crowd wants to make Jesus a king in their image. Jesus is the king who wants to make the people into his image. Let me say that again. The crowd wants to make Jesus a king in their image. Jesus is the king who wants to make his people into his image. And to see how this works, let me give you an analogy of what the real problem is, okay? Because Israel, the people in this crowd, they don't actually know what they need. They're like a person standing eye-deep in sewage, okay? Imagine that for a minute. They're standing eye-deep in sewage, and every breath is a struggle because you've got to jump up and catch a breath of the fetid, toxic air before you fall back into the sewage. And as they jump up to catch their breath, they've seen this log floating along, made of wood. (laughs) And they think, I am gonna grab onto that log, and I'm gonna get up, and I'm I'm gonna get my head out of this sewage so that breathing is easier. And they've ridden this log before, it's the log of national pride, it's the log of nationalism. And, and they've been up there, they've been on top, there's only one log, everyone in this sewage is fighting for it. And in the days of David, in the days of Solomon, they got to have a king who rode this log and it was glorious. And they think, if we can just get somebody who's better at riding that log, then we're going to be good. And that's what we need, we need a king who can get us up there. And Jesus comes onto the scene, he says, no, you don't. You need the sewage gone. You need to be cleaned up. You need your whole existence to change. And so Jesus doesn't help them on the log. He walks right on by. And they're cheering him as he comes into the city. Get up there, Jesus. Mount that, you know, get on that throne. Ride, do a good job, bearing us back to our glory. And he keeps walking. And he walks past the log, the throne that they think he needs to mount. And he walks over to the grate where all this sewage is pouring out. And he stands in front of that grate and he goes like this and he blocks the flow. And he dies doing that. He lodges his body in that gate and the pressure and the toxicity of that filth kill him. And his body, he stays there for three days from Friday till Sunday, long enough to back the whole system up and destroy it at the source. And then on Sunday... He gets up. He comes back to life and he steps out of that gate, clean, pure, shining white robes. And he comes back to his people who for the first time in their life are not eye deep in sewage. And he offers them the cleansing waters of baptism and the fresh air and new breath and new life of the Holy Spirit. And that's the kind of king they need. And he doesn't just do that for the people of Israel. He does that for all people. Now, the log's still there, and there's still sewage around, 
And some of those people choose to keep trying to ride the log and, and keep living in filth. But, but they don't have to, and we don't have to, because of the kind of king that Jesus is. Now, it's easy to say, especially with an analogy like that, they should have known better. They tried it. It hadn't worked. No matter how many times they had good kings, it never worked because behind nationalism was sin in the people of, that God had called, the nation of Israel, as well as all the other ones. There's sin. There's this sewage all over the place that destroys everything. They should have known better. Why didn't they see what kind of king Jesus really was? But there's a danger whenever we come to that moment in Scripture where we look at what the people are doing and we say, what were they thinking? Why didn't they want Jesus to be the king he was? Why did they try to make him something different? You go back to the Exodus and you watch the people in the desert mess up again and again and again and worship idols and wish to go back to Egypt and you think, what's wrong with you? You're eating manna from heaven. Quail comes by every day miraculously. There's water coming out of a rock and there's a pillar of smoke and fire leading you through the desert. How could you do this? There's a danger whenever we get to that moment of thinking, I would never do that, right? I do that. I, I don't understand how anybody could be so dumb. Ah, uh, well, just think about your life for a few minutes. Doesn't take me very long. And so I wanted, as I got to that point in preparing my sermon, I wanted to say, okay, now we just get to declare Jesus as king and we get to celebrate that and rah, rah, rah. And we'll get there next Sunday on Easter when we celebrate and learn about the ways in which Jesus has revealed his true and real kingship. But today we have to ask a question. Today we have to ask the question, how do we do exactly the same thing that this crowd did? How do we seek to make Jesus a king in our image instead of allowing him, who he is the king, to make us into his image? And I, I th sat with this for a little while, and I prayed about this, and I, I thought, there's a lot of ways that this could be true of each of us as individuals. And I wanted to share two that are both um, highly relevant, I think, culturally. They're quite common, but also a little bit autobiographical, like they're true of me as well. These are just two examples to get you, to begin to get you thinking in the ways in which this is possible. The first one I thought about um, is entertainment. Now, let me back up for a minute. In order to understand these things well, we have to understand that what the people of Israel are doing in this moment and what we do when we do this same thing, it's always a twisting of something that really is good. So the, the nation of Israel is suffering deep injustice under the Romans, and they long for justice, and God is a king of justice, right? This is all true. Where they mess up is where they think, so what we need is to be set on top, because being on top means we'll have justice, just like the Romans have it right now, and that's not actually what they need. They think they need national power, but their longing is for justice. The longing is right. They're, they're suffering deep depravity under the Roman rule, and they think we need provision. We need wellness, and again, God is a God of provision and wellness. They're not wrong about that. Where they're wrong is where they think if we're going to get these things, we've got to be like the super richest, most extravagant kingdom in the land, right? That's what we need. It's that connection. So I think about entertainment. We long for life. And God is, a, Jesus is a king of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life, right? We are right to come to Jesus 
with our longing for life. But our culture has tricked us into thinking that life is found in entertainment. We like the dopamine, right? And then we come to Jesus, who his most spectacular miracles, mostly nobody saw them. Only a few people see him walk on water. Only a few people see him transfigured. No one sees him rise from the dead, and only a few see him after that, right? He's not an entertaining king. That's not what he came to do. But we like the new, and we like, we like the exciting, and we like the different. And I catch myself doing this. This is just one simple way. I'll be reading a book, and I'll get to where they quote the Bible, and I'll skip that part because I know the Bible already. That's not why I'm reading this book. I'm reading this book for the new and the exciting, and, and that's just a little way. You look at the way that our culture has treated entertainment. I was talking to Christina about this. You go back you know, 80 years, and we were entertained by I Love Lucy. Today it takes, and I'm probably dating myself even by saying this, but today it takes something like Game of Thrones. And, and it's like watching an addict who needs the hit to be stronger every time. And our culture just keeps going deeper because we haven't realized that there is no life there. It was in the 80s that Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Because that's what amusement, like if that's the point, if the point is just to be amused, you're not getting anywhere. Most often, when I come to God, I need to hear the same thing. I need to hear, you are my son, whom I love. In you I am well pleased. I need to hear that every day. And I start thinking about that. I tell my wife every day I love her. I sincerely hope she never gets bored hearing it. I don't get bored hearing it. I want to hear that from her every day, right? The deepest and most important things aren't the new. They're what's true and what's needful. And that's what Jesus brings us. <coughs> so this is one of the ways that I thought about this. The other way that I thought about this was in the area of independence. Again, there's a twisting of something good. We long for freedom. And Jesus is the king of freedom. He brings us the truth that sets us free. But our culture has tricked us into thinking that freedom is found in independence, in my ability to be and do whatever I want to be and do, in unlimited choice, in unrestricted being. Jesus comes along, and especially in the Gospel of John, he says over and over again, I never say anything except what my Father tells me. I never do anything except what he wills. He walks on this journey through the Garden of Gethsemane where he, he sweats blood and, and cries out to God, do I have to do this? And when the answer is yes, he says, not my will, but thy will be done. He submits. He lives a life of submission. He lives a life of dependence. Now, obviously, there's unhealthy dependence too, but that's less of a problem in our culture than an unhealthy independence. And how many times do we come to God and what we're praying for, what we're asking for is for restraints and restrictions to be removed so that we can be free? Lots of times those restraints and those restrictions are there for good reasons, very good reasons. This weekend, we were at the Soul Care Conference, and God had some work he needed to do in my heart, and I, I've been ill. I've had a, I've, you might be able to hear it a little bit. I'm almost all the way through it, Lord willing, but I've had a, this bad cold and cough for like three, three and a half, almost four weeks, um, and during the conference, I knew that I needed to be sick while I was there. It was humbling. It was making me pray more. It was making me dependent. Now, I wish those things were more true of me when I wasn't sick, but I'm human, and so... 
in my weakness and in my limitations, I'm often pushed to God, and I need it. I need it. It was a good thing. Now, that hasn't stopped me since coming back from the conference saying, okay, God, if that's what I needed it for, could you just make me well right now? Um, he's getting there, but he's doing it slowly and keeping me humble, and that's really, really good. Now, these are just two examples of the ways that we so easily twist the good kingship of Jesus into something in our own image. I could talk lots more. I immediately I thought of another one, which is this idea of our culture idolizing ease. We like things to be easy and, and restful and simple all the time. Now, God is a God of rest. He's also a God of hard work. Six days he created the earth, and the seventh day he rested, and he leads us to strive in our faith, um, to, to, to struggle for the gospel, and also to put our burdens upon him and find rest and all these kind of things. And you can look at your prayers and ask those same questions. Am I allowing God to be the king he needs to be in my life, or am I demanding that he be in my image? So next Sunday, we are going to come together and we are going to declare the kingship of Jesus. Because there's no time, like when we celebrate the resurrection, to remember how it is that Jesus is king. Today, I want to invite you into a few minutes of prayer. And I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to come into your, into, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is here. To invite the Holy Spirit to speak into your life, to reveal to you if there are any ways that you have sought to make Jesus a king in your image, instead of allowing him to remake you into his image. And so I'm going to explain this for a minute, and then I'm going to invite the worship team up, and then we're actually going to take, they're going to play soft instrumental music, and we're going to take three or four or five minutes of just silent, on your own, praying. And so as we do that, I will corporately invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us in this moment. And this may be different for some of you, sitting silently in a church service for three to four to five minutes um, and trying to listen to God. You may need to keep listening throughout the week. This isn't necessarily something you're going to sort out in three minutes on a Sunday morning. You may get to the end of that three minutes and think, well, that was a waste of time. It wasn't. We wait on the Lord, and he speaks in his own good time. And so I invite you to keep asking this question until you've heard an answer throughout this week. For some of you, you already know, or as soon as we start praying, you're going to know the place where God has, has where you have tried to make God into a, a king in your own image. Um, and if that's the case, then the next step is to repent of that, to ask the Lord's forgiveness for that, knowing that he does forgive you and that he has only revealed that to you to bring you life. And that's the thing about when we come to God to ask these questions. God reveals this stuff to us. He doesn't, he's not interested in condemning. He's not interested in pushing you down or just saying, like, look how awful you are. This is never what God does. He, he reveals it to you so that you can have a deeper greater life in him. And if you're not used to listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit, know that if there is any condemnation in what you are hearing, it is not God speaking to you. He does not condemn. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So I'm not inviting you into this time because I want you to feel bad at the end of this time of prayer, okay? I want to be very clear about that. Um, the Holy Spirit comes and reveals the truth, and as we accept that truth, we are set free. That's what he wants. He wants us to find true freedom in Jesus. So, all of that said, those are just some comments to help you in this time and to guide you. For some of you, this will be very familiar. Some of you, this will be very weird. Do not feel bad if you struggle to focus for this time. Uh, I do want to say that there's going to be some of you here this morning. We're going to lead you in this time of prayer. I'm going to stay up here. I'm probably going to kneel as we pray, and you can do whatever posture helps you to pray. That's fine. Um, 
And then after the couple minutes and the instrumental music is still going on, I'm going to get up and I'm probably just going to say, you know, thank you, Lord, for what you've spoken. Lead us through this week. Amen. And as I do that, as I get up to close the prayer, some of you are going to be like, oh my goodness, I've spent that whole three minutes thinking about something else. That may be, for a couple of you, a clue to exactly where you need to start thinking about how you've made Jesus a king in your image instead of the other way around. It's not necessarily, you're going to have to use your discernment there, because some of you have come really stressed, and it's hard for you not to focus on the things you're stressed about, so that may be all it is. But for some of us here, that's going to be the revelatory moment. The thing that filled your head when you were trying to pray, there's something going on there. I, I kind of want to say any questions. Like, I just instructed you on, like, how we're going to do this prayer time. Um, but uh, do anyone want to shout out a question? You're free to. Otherwise, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up, and we're going to spend a couple minutes asking God to speak to us in this way. This is a personal thing. We each do this a little bit differently, and we each need to hear from God in the midst of this. So let me begin in a time of prayer, or in this time of prayer, by praying together. (coughs) Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a king who comes to make us into your image because you are the way, the truth, and the life. You're the bread of life. You're the good shepherd. You are light. We need to be like you, Lord God. So we invite you to come, Holy Spirit, now and speak to us and guide us in this time of prayer. Speak to each of us about the ways in which we have sought to make you in our own image instead of submitting to your work to make us into yours. Reveal that to us now, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together.